0: Sight, sound, smell, touch, and taste—they're so automatic, aren't they? They just—they just function in our bodies without us even really being that conscious that we are smelling or that we are hearing. These things just function. Sensory perception is a, it's an incredible reality. We are fearfully and brilliantly made. Now, of course, when these things are suddenly missing, as has happened under COVID circumstances, when you suddenly find that you can't smell and you can't taste, then you know that something is wrong. All is not well. Or when you can smell, but what you're smelling is not pleasant, it's unpleasant. Or a a loud sound, like when the preacher shouts, hallelujah, when there's poor lighting. One of the things that we've been speaking about as a leadership is that sometimes it feels as if the, the lighting in the auditorium is not sufficient. In the world of retail, these realities of sensory, of sensory perception are being exploited. I wonder if you're aware of that, that sometimes there is in a mall the introduction artificially of the smell of coffee brewing, especially if you're near a coffee shop, or you might be aware of white noise. They actually use white noise in places that they don't want to be quiet. You shouldn't be able to hear your footsteps in a mall. And so they introduce over the sound system white noise. Because we don't like very quiet environments. When you go into some shops, you just sense that this is a nice place to be. And if you took notice, you'd probably be able to connect that sense of pleasure with the quality of the lighting. It's a very important thing in retail. You've got to have just the right lighting. And so people will debate well, what is the best kind of light? Is it warm white or cool white? I remember when uh, Jono first came to our home, we had a lot of cool white globes in our home. <laughs> I can see Yuri smiling because this is the kind of thing that Jono notices. And he said, you know, this house would be, would be different if you changed the cool white for warm white. And lo and behold, that's true. I'm enjoying my home more as a result, Jonah. Warm white is more welcoming than cool white. And yet in a retail environment, what you need is cool white in some settings and warm in others. How many lumens are good? Does it need to be bright? Does it need to be dim? Well, in a restaurant, you want it to be dim. But in Woolworths, you want it to be bright. Interesting, these sensory issues, and I raise these issues of atmosphere and how we experience these realities of sensory perspective, because that's exactly where our text is going to take us this morning. We want to appreciate the need for light, and ultimately we're not even or primarily speaking about physical light, but more especially we want to leave today appreciating our need for spiritual light. But physical light is important and that's where our text will take us. We want to appreciate today that light is intricately connected to life. Light is intricately connected to life. So turn with me then to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25. We've been exposing ourselves to this historical record of what God instructed Moses to make. Moses needed to make these things because God wanted there to be a place where he could meet with his people, to dwell with his people. And the big lesson that we're learning again and again is that the God of the Bible is a God of relationship, a God of, of intimacy, a God of communication. And so we can trace this theme through Scripture. In the Garden of Eden before the fall, there was God having fellowship, being intimate with These two creatures made in his image. And now in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, in the temple in Jerusalem, and ultimately now in this new covenant era, God dwells amongst his people. No longer in a place, but now by his spirit as Christ is formed in our hearts. So Exodus 25. Reading from verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand." Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it, a single piece of hammered work, of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold and see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. Well, that's the Word of God, and I trust as I do Sunday after Sunday that you'd have the Word open before you. We want to draw some lessons from the text. That's how God works. Now, Alec Mottier said this in his commentary. He said, the tabernacle or the sanctuary is God's picture gallery. It's a lovely thought, isn't it? How important it is for us to go to an Old Testament book like Exodus and to walk through the picture gallery of the tabernacle and the sanctuary. Matthias says it's possibly the greatest of all biblical visual aids we loved it at school didn't we and at university when the lecturer or the teacher would use a visual aid because our ears work quite well to form pictures in our minds but it's much easier if they're words and a picture well there's going to be a picture on the board in a moment but not quite yet let's just appreciate what the words mean that this tabernacle, this sanctuary as God's picture gallery, is probably the greatest of all visual aids in the Bible. And so it's good to take time and to, to work through these things and see why God has given them to us. And of course, we're bringing New Testament lenses to appreciate these Old Testament pictures. And that highlights a biblical interpretive reality that I want to mention again because I think we need not only to have these words in our vocabulary, but we need to have these skills at our fingertips in terms of typology. That as we come to the Old Testament and we use New Testament lenses to appreciate the Old Testament, we need to appreciate that God, in His wisdom, has chosen to use type to lead us to appreciate anti-type, that there is a visible reality, a type, but it's actually designed not only for its own sake, but for something bigger and more ultimate, namely the anti-type. And that's how we must approach the Old Testament. And we need to practice this again and again, always bringing New Testament lenses as we deal with all of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, and so we've looked at the people's contributions that they made. We've looked at the Ark of the Covenant that had these three salvific divisions: the law in the box, the holiness of God amongst the the, uh, the uh, cherubim, and this seat where the blood of propitiation was smeared. We've looked at the table of showbread where the bread of the presence was displayed before God, and we considered last week the Lord Jesus Christ as the bread of life. And so what we are going to look at now is this, this fourth aspect of the golden lampstand. God designed, God explained, God demanded the making of a golden lampstand. Well, this is a good time, Rhodes, to give us... The plan. So that's looking down. You're familiar with this picture now. It's the boundary curtain. We haven't looked at that. We've only looked at the tented area. There is this courtyard. And then there's the tented area. The Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And these three items in the holy place. The table of showbread on the north side. The golden candlestick on the south side and the altar of incense west in front of the curtain. Well, there it is. Have that picture in your mind. Now, let's just appreciate that when the priest was standing in front of the table, replacing those 12 loaves that he did once a week, remember we saw the The loaves, 12 of them, were in two piles of six round loaves, and on top was some some frankincense incense. When he came to change those loaves weekly, if he had to turn right around, if he had to turn through 180 degrees, no longer facing north, but now facing south, he would be looking at the golden candlestick. It's interesting. As you take that away thanks road, it's interesting that the lampstand, by God's design, was placed on the south side of the holy place. And I find it very interesting that the Hebrew word for south means bright or radiant. Now, isn't that interesting? That God would actually say, I want these things made like this, placed in these spots. That's how God is. He is God after all. But now, let's look at the lampstand, the second picture. There it is. Now, that's the traditional way of seeing it. And you wonder as you read this description whether that's the only way it could be. But you see it there, seven branches, a a main stem, and then three branches coming out from either side. There it is. And of course there is some debate. Thanks, Rode. There is some debate as to whether that is actually how it looked or not, because as you, as you follow the description of it, it's not easy to come up with one pattern of what it would look like. But what we can be sure of Is that in that tent, and as we'll see when we look at chapter 26, this was a multi-layer tent with no windows, no natural light. You can imagine just how urgent the need was for artificial light, for light to be provided there in the holy place. Very closed up, confined space needed a lamp and God Prescribed one. Well, let's notice a couple of things from the text. We want to to draw some lessons from the text. And the first lesson that we can draw, the first thing we can notice from the text, is that the word used to refer to this item of furniture is not a candlestick. Some translations describe it as a candlestick. It's not a candlestick, it's a lampstand. The word golden lampstand is used seven times. The Afrikaans word is a, a chouwe kandelaar. The name that we give to it today in Jewish circles is a menorah, that seven-lamped, seven-armed structure. It's one of the most recognizable symbols of Judaism. Furthermore, we want to appreciate that this piece of furniture doesn't hold candles. It holds lamps. Now, that might not be a big issue in your own mind, but the reality is candles work with wax. These lamps, by God's design, worked with olive oil, pure olive oil with wicks. And so there was a little, a little container that held the olive oil. And as you look at the text, what we have here is really three different Aspects because one is the structure of the of the thing, then the lamps that were put on top of the thing, and then the instruments that were used to trim those wicks in the olive oil in the holders on the structure that 's just trying to take the text seriously, but furthermore won 't you notice it 's very noticeable that there is an absence of dimensions. God was very particular about the shape and the size of the ark of the tabernacle. God was very particular about the size and the shape of the table. But somehow he doesn't give any dimensions for this lamp. He just says what it should look like. And even then we can't be sure of what that would translate to. Those who know how gold Works in terms of its construction and how much gold was used tell us that this structure was probably only three or four feet tall. It was probably only this size. It wasn't six feet tall, which is what I would have thought in terms of what is needed in that kind of area, something very imposing. But it seems like that's not necessarily the case. Even more importantly, I think this has been a helpful thought for me. It may be helpful to you that possibly this structure resembled the burning bush in Exodus 3. So not all the arms in one plane, but actually some like this and some like that. So that you had this thing looking like a bush with seven flames on it just a suggestion. There's no reason from the text that that should be rejected. Something that would help us buy into that idea is that there seem to be some botanical tree-like references here. I mean, think of it. There are references to branches and cups and buds and blossoms and almonds. Those are all botanical terms. That seems to be a tree is being described for us here. Not just a but and uh, the Afrikaans ons van Kelkis. have got some children listening at the back there. The Kelkis and the Knopper and the Amandels the Bluisels. Wonderful botanical terms. This seems to me to be a tree that's being described. And of course, Moses has been struck by the significance of a tree right at the very outset of his mission. Now, here's the complicated part because there seems as if on each of the branches there were three flowering units. So six times three is 18. And on the main shaft, there were four flowering units. So there seem to be 24 of these flowering units, blossoms and cups and almonds. What was their purpose? Seems to be just purely decorative. Seems like it. They could be symbolic. God doesn't do anything willy-nilly. But the fact is that the practical provision of the light came from seven lamps that are specifically mentioned in verse 37. These calyxes and blossoms and buds and almonds are not the providers of the light. The lamps are the providers of the light. Now notice that God specifies not the dimensions but the fact that one talent of pure gold was to be used, 34 kilograms. Now, it's helpful for me to picture this in liters. A three-liter milk bottle, these are very common in the States. Um, Chuck, is that a a gallon, sort of three liters? But I see now at at Woolworths you can get three liters of milk rather than two. Now, that three-liter bottle is the size of the lump of gold that was to be used And isn't it interesting that God wanted this all to be hammered out of one piece? Now, just pause for a moment and imagine the skill required to hammer this one talent, this 34 kilograms of pure gold, to hammer it out in such a way that you can form this thing as one thing. That's incredible. That's incredible, that God gave the skill to do that. We read of that elsewhere in Scripture, but what we do read here is that God insisted that it be hammered work, not cast in a mold. And there's a very significant casting that's going to happen soon. The golden calf, that was cast in a mold, but this needed to be hammered out. Interesting. I think we mustn't miss those issues, and there is a, an application that comes in a moment won 't you notice also from the text that no wood is used in this item? No acacia wood. The ark is made of wood covered in gold leaf the The table is made of wood covered in gold leaf, but not this not this lampstand and then of course there 's reference to the the lamps and the instruments needed to tend the lamps. So, that's the text. You've taken note of all the pieces in the text. I find that very helpful. And I, I want to encourage you to be trained to notice the details. Because God, the God of the Bible, is a God of detail. Isn't it wonderful to worship a God of detail? Because He takes note of the detail in our lives. Well, from those observations, let's move to some deeper, interesting issues to contemplate. And this is where we start moving from type to anti-type. You see, friends, the practical need for light, the practical need for light, being fashioned symbolically suggestive of a tree, and specifically an almond tree, Interestingly, the almond tree was the first tree in Palestine to bloom in spring. That's an interesting little fact. But in this tree, all three stages of growth are depicted. The buds, the blossoms, and the fruit. And the conclusion that we can draw from this tree with its buds and blossoms and almonds this provider of light, it seems to me that there is this second reality of the link between light and life. And I think we start getting into wonderful vistas of divine truth when we begin to make this connection between life and light. Because you see, the lamp in the form of a tree speaks of light and life. And why? Isn't it amazing that these are two indispensable gospel realities? Jesus Christ is the one through whom repentant sinners get life. And they get it through him who is himself the lamp of the new Jerusalem. In the new Jerusalem, there won't be a need for the sun because Christ will be there. And Revelation 21, 23 specifically says that Jesus is that lamp. Can you see the significance as you begin to look at this with that lens? And so we have this lamp, this tree, this reference to Christ. But there's something more. Did you notice the use of the number seven? It's very significant that. I don't think we should miss that at all the significance of the the number seven, the seven lamps and the light that they give. When light is refracted, how many shades are there in the rainbow? Seven. Isn't that interesting? There seems to be a perfection here. There seems to be a completeness that this red and yellow, sorry, the red, orange, yellow, green, Blue, indigo, and violet. Full light. Seven components. Seven lamps. But there's more because you you go to Revelation chapter 1 verse 4 and chapter 3 verse 1 and chapter 4 verse 5 and chapter 5 verse 6. And what do you find there? You find Christ as the sevenfold spirit of God. That's deep stuff. That's deep stuff because now we're, now we're referring to, to the second person of the Godhead in terms of the third person of the Godhead. And, of course, we know that Jesus came, and when he left, he sent the Holy Spirit. He left the Holy Spirit for us to represent him and to take what is his and give it to us, the sevenfold Spirit of God. This is very interesting. And it's worth contemplating that God has given us this lamp with seven lights. And this lamp speaks of Christ, the perfect one, the complete one. Now, Arthur Pink has raised a very interesting interpretive and applicatory question in my own mind. And I mention it to you now because it will be helpful for you Pink simply asks the question, and of course, for those who know Arthur Pink, he can ask some provocative questions. Pink asks the question, can we, in application of this picture in Exodus, make a big thing of Jesus as the light of the world? Because of course he is. But the very texts in John chapter 9 and John chapter 12, where Jesus speaks of himself as the light of the world, it was whilst he was here in the world and he actually warned and said, take note of me whilst I'm still here, whilst you still have the light. And Pink suggests, and I think he's correct, that possibly it is more beneficial for us on the basis of this text, this picture, in the picture gallery of God. It's more correct for us to appeal not to the world in general, but to us believers, we who have gathered here to worship God, to appeal to us to embrace and appreciate Christ as the light in the holy place. Because you see, Jesus is in the Father's presence even now, representing us as our high priest. And because of him, we have access there. The Holy of Holies was visible from the holy place because the veil had been removed when Christ died on the cross. Christ is our light in this season that separates his first advent from his final appearance. Does 1 John 1.17 not promise that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Did Hebrews 1.3 not teach us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God? He is an effulgence of light to light our lives and to light our minds and to light our future with hope. And so... As we head towards a close, let me suggest four notable interpretive factors that would woo us, would woo me, and would woo you to Christ as we prepare for another week in the world. And the first interpretive factor is this. I mentioned it a moment ago, the hammered gold, the beaten gold. Because the Christ that we worship was a suffering Savior. He allowed himself to suffer at the hands of men, but he suffers no longer. He died and has risen and has ascended to the Father's right hand. He is in light, ineffable, right now. But then secondly, won't you notice that this lampstand, where was it? Was it where everyone could see it? No, it was in a hidden place. It was in a private place where only the priests could go in. It was out of the public eye, in the holy place. And the reality is, friends, that Christ is hidden from the world, and he's only to be enjoyed in real terms by those who know him by faith. The world doesn't know him. Their minds are darkened. They're disinterested. They're taken up with trivialities and trinkets. But Christians who've known their need of a Savior and have humbled themselves and come to the Savior, we can see this Christ with eyes of faith. But then thirdly, the seven lamps that are spoken of here seem to speak of the sufficiency of Christ and his gift of the Holy Spirit for the good of his people and for their perfection. Fourthly, and finally, before we bring together this in, some application. Here's a very interesting fact. The lampstand only burnt at night. The lamps weren't burning all the time. They only burnt at night. Exodus 27 tells us quite clearly at the end of the chapter 27, when it speaks of the oil for the lamp, You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it, notice, from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. The light burned at a time of darkness which is exactly the season in which we live. This is a time of darkness. Christ is not here with us physically as he once was and as he will be. And so he's left us to be his light in this world. And I close with these thoughts, that the primary purpose of a text like this one And my primary desire and delight in preaching a message like this as a shepherd is to direct you to the Lord Jesus Christ, the friend and the savior of sinners, the faithful high priest who is God and who is the only way to eternal fellowship with God. And here's the point, friends, that when darkness in your mind and soul overwhelm and frighten you by faith, And in prayer, go to Jesus who is light and life. Call out to him and cling to him with this assurance. He will not reject you. He will not reject you. When you feel bereft, when you feel derelict, when you feel abandoned, go to Christ. Go to him by faith. He won't reject you. He won't when confusing unbidden feelings of fear and dread and discouragement and despair threaten to overwhelm you, Friends, what you need in those moments is not some mind-numbing entertainment or some intellectual distraction. What you need is not some substance, solid or liquid, to put down your throat. What you need is not some exercise-induced endorphin high. What you need is not some mind-altering medication. What you need is not some escape into sleep. You don't need retail therapy. You don't need another breakaway. And change your environment and take a break. You don't need that. In those moments when things are tough and you feel tempted to despair, go to Christ. Go to Christ. Heed the invitation of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to him who is meek and lowly, your shepherd whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. Admit your need. I'm in darkness. I'm dead. I feel dead. He'll give you light and life. Only he can. Only he can. I experienced this this morning at four o'clock. I just woke up in a fuzz. And I could feel those feelings tempting to overwhelm me and just make me lose perspective a glory in those moments to go to Christ. He won't reject you. He won't. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would shine brightly in our lives. We do pray, O God, for ourselves, that you would shine brightly in our hearts and our minds, drive out all the darkness of ignorance and unbelief, drive out the sense of death that seems to encroach upon us in our sinfulness and in our neglect of the means of grace and in our moments of doubt, and when we give in to the temptation to despair, and when we look at the storms around us, oh God, please shine your light. Lord Jesus, we pray, by the power of your Spirit, shine your light in us. But how we pray that you would shine your light through us as well. Shine your light on us, to show us to the world to be your people, your representatives. But shine through us as we speak for you, as we do our good deeds and cause you, our Father in heaven, to be worshipped and adored. Oh God, please, in all our believing, in all our coming, in all our clinging, in all our doing. Shine your light, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.